The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. This is the London Visited podcast on your favourite podcast provider, bringing to you the facts, history and information about different parts of this great capital. If you have been to London, are planning on visiting, live here or just love London from afar, then this is the podcast for you. Hi, I'm Steve and welcome to our podcast. We're here for all things London and to tell you more behind some of the iconic places and people in London's history. In this episode, we go back to the Waterloo and City Line for the second and final episode. Don't forget to visit and subscribe to our YouTube channel, London Visited, to see videos covering this place and so many others across London. Also, if you love the podcast and the channel, why not join us as a member? Join our group of what we like to call our London Visited Crown Jewels, where there are many different benefits, including a members-only monthly podcast. Have a look by going to www.patreon.com forward slash London Visited. And now, to this week's podcast. By the Railways Act of 1921, the mainline railway companies of Great Britain were grouped into four companies, effective at the beginning of 1923. The LSWR was now part of the Southern Railway. Due to the Waterloo and City status as part of the one of the big four railway companies, it was not taken over by the London Passenger Transport Board, the LPTB, at the latter's formation in 1933 making the Waterloo and City the only tube railway in London not to fall under the control of LPTB. Despite this anomaly, the line was included on most versions of the underground map, produced by the LPTB and its successors up to the line's absorption into the London Underground Network in 1994. In 1934, the LPTB proposed that the Waterloo and City line should have a new intermediate station at Blackfriars, connecting with the district line station there. They further proposed that the Waterloo and City line should be extended to Liverpool Street Station and Shoreditch, the trains there continuing to the East London Railway to New Cross and New Cross Gate. It is not clear whether the scheme had been costed, but nothing ever came of it. In 1937, the Southern Railway carried out a thorough review of the technical aspects of the line, now 40 years old. This led to an immediate proposal to order new rolling stock in five-car formations, in association with the provision of escalators at the city station. The scheme was delayed and the declaration of war on the 3rd of September 1939 led to the cancellation of the escalator scheme. However, the rolling stock order was proceeded with and the Art Deco style trains were delivered in 1940, later classified as Class 487. A third rail to power the new trains was installed as well as automatic signalling with train stops. The city signal box was abolished and fully automatic working implemented there. The lay-by sidings were abolished. 
The new stock did not require travelling conductors, and tickets were issued at the terminals. When the line reopened with the new trains on the 28th of October 1940, the city station was renamed Bank, in conformity with the usage of LPTB there. On the 1st of January 1948, the Southern Railway, as well as other main railway lines of Great Britain, was nationalised, forming British Railways. On the 13th of April 1948, a serious accident took place at the Waterloo Armstrong Lift. Coal was still taken down to the original generating station, which powered station offices at Waterloo. A shunt of wagons was being propelled onto the lift at the upper level. Four pools were supposed to be engaged to provide partial support to the lift table, but it appears that some had not engaged. The table tilted, drawing the wagons and the M7 locomotive number 672 onto the table. The table and the entire shunt, including the locomotive, fell down the shaft. The locomotive and wagons were cut up in situ. There is no information as to the fate of the locomotive driver. When the line was built, the platforms at Bank, then known as City, were located a considerable distance from the surface exits, and a long sloping tunnel had to be negotiated on foot. This led to constant complaints, and from 1929 there were many proposals to improve the arrangements as passenger numbers increased, adding congestion to the physical exhaustion. The proposals had included new escalators, direct connection to adjacent Central London Railway, later the Central Line platforms, and new, closer tunnelled exits. In the 1950s, a speedwalk system of people mover consisted of a continuous rubber belt system. It was implemented in certain American cities. After considerable delay, considering this and the alternatives, British Railways let a contract on the 4th of July 1957 for the civil engineering works in driving a new sloping access tunnel, in which a pair of travelators, at the time written travel later, would be installed by Waygood Otis. Otis did not, at this stage, gain a contract. However, as work was getting underway, the government imposed heavy cuts in capital expenditure on the railways, and after considerable deliberation, it was decided once again to defer alleviation of the problem. No financial benefit was anticipated from the scheme, whereas competing schemes would significantly reduce operational costs. The consulting engineers were directed to suspend work on the 11th of December 1957, although some enabling work, particularly a sewer diversion, proceeded. The financial restrictions were not long-lasting, and on the 10th of July 1958, it was announced that the work would resume. It progressed without further major difficulties, and a formal opening by the Lord Mayor of London took place on the 27th of September 1960, coming into public use immediately. There were two parallel travelators, each with a moving surface having 488 platform sections, each 40 by 16 inches, the whole length is 302 feet on an inclination of one in seven. There was a moving handrail. In the morning peak, both travelators would operate upwards, with arriving passengers being required to walk down the original ramps. At other times, one travelator operated in each direction. The original Otis travelators have since been replaced by CNIM machines. In association with the work, some improvements were made to the station environment at Waterloo Station, and a two and a half minute frequency was implemented in the peaks. This involved some minor signaling changes, reversion to an alternating platform use at bank, and the use of turnover drivers and guards, where the arriving driver and guard were replaced by staff waiting at the appropriate place for the change of direction, sometimes referred to as stepping up. A rear cab clear plunger is placed at bank so the arriving driver can confirm that he is clear of the cab and the step back driver can depart when the signal clears. Overall, the work had cost £910,500. 
On the 1st of April 1994, the line was transferred to London Underground Limited. At the time, staff were given the option of transferring with the line or remaining in British Rail employment, and all except one chose the latter. The drivers are currently based at Leytonstone. From the 5th of April 1996, the line began working to a new timetable, with three trains departing in each 10 minutes during the morning peak. In June 2003, the Waterloo and City Line was closed for over three weeks for safety checks, after a major derailment on the Central Line, which required all 1992 tube stock trains to be modified. That same year, responsibility for the line's maintenance was given to the Metronet Consortium under the terms of a public-private partnership arrangement. In the summer of 2006, the line was closed for five months for a £40 million upgrade by Metronet. The work included refurbishment of the tunnels, platforms and depot, for replacement of the track and signalling, and repainting and refurbishment of the trains. Four new battery-powered locomotives named Water, Lou, Anne and Kitty were built by Clayton Equipment in Derby to haul materials and plant along the line during the closure. These works were expected to boost the rush hour capacity by 25% and line capacity by 12% at a cost of tens of millions of pounds. It was also claimed that the average journey would be up to 40 seconds shorter. During the 2012 Summer Olympics and 2012 Summer Paralympics between late July and early September 2012, trains ran on Sundays to cope with the demand for travel in the city. In the late 2010s, a new entrance and bank station was constructed at Bloomberg's new London headquarters providing direct access to the line via four new escalators and two lifts, providing step-free access to the Waterloo and City Line platforms. Although step-free access is available at Bank, there is no step-free access at Waterloo, and therefore the line does not have step-free access. Toward the end of the 1980s, the rolling stock fleet built in the 1940s was increasingly unreliable. As part of the total route modernization project by Network Southeast, the decision was taken to purchase new vehicles as an addition to an order for new 1992 stock trains by London Underground for the Central Line. Five four-car trains were ordered, albeit in Network Southeast livery, and no provision for automatic train operation. The trains were constructed in 1992 to 1993 and were initially tested and commissioned on the Central Line before being delivered by road to Waterloo Depot. Unlike the previous trains, the new trains required a fourth rail traction current system, with a current aluminium negative rail installed as part of the upgrade works to the line. On the 28th of May 1993, all of the old rolling stock was withdrawn, the train service being suspended temporarily. A temporary bus service was run while the old rolling stock was physically removed and the new rolling stock brought in. The line reopened on the 19th of July 1993 with a peak service frequency of three and a half minutes. In April 1994, these trains transferred to the London Underground following the privatisation of British Rail. Despite this, the trains kept their network southeast livery. In 2006, the 1992 stock trains were overhauled, refurbished and repainted as part of the line upgrade by Metronet. As part of the work, seats were replaced, CCTV was installed, and the original Network Southeast livery was replaced by the London Underground corporate livery. A 500-ton crane was required to lift the trains in and out of Waterloo Depot. There have been proposals to extend the Waterloo and City Line for over a century. After acquiring the Great Northern and City Railway in 1913, the current Northern City Line, the Metropolitan Railway considered proposals to join the Great Northern and City Railway to the Waterloo and City Line or to the Circle Line but these never came to fruition. 
Any extension of the line north would be difficult because of the complex web of tube lines around Bank, and an extension to the south would be unlikely to provide demand that matched the cost. The narrow tunnels and short train lengths of the current route make any extension less cost-effective than larger projects, such as Crossrail 2, which cost more but start with modern tunnels and the promise of far greater benefits. The London Plan Working Party Report of 1949 envisaged as its route G the electrification of the London Tilbury and South End Railway and its diversion away from Fenchurch Street to Bank and on through to the Waterloo and City Tunnels to Waterloo and its suburban lines. The Waterloo and City Tunnels would have had to have been bored out to a mainline size to enable this to happen at a quite a cost. In the event, only the electrification of the London Tilbury and South End Railway took place, though the Docklands Light Railway Tunnel from Minories to the Bank follows this part of the envisaged route. The revised Working Party Report of 1965 did not mention the Route G proposal, though it does conclude that the possibility of extending the Waterloo and City Line northwards to Liverpool Street has been examined, but found to be physically impractical. Around 2009, the Green Party revived the Metropolitan's plan of connecting the Northern City and Waterloo and City Lines as a crossrail route. Because the Waterloo and City Line is closed on Sundays, it's also become a well-established and convenient location for film companies, not least because when it was owned by British Rail and its predecessors, it could be used when London Transport were unwilling or unable to allow access to their own stations or lines. The remnants of one of the gatehead tunnelling shields used in the construction of the line can be seen in the interchange tunnel at Bank, connecting the Waterloo and City Line platforms with those of the Northern Line and the Docklands Light Railway. It's painted red. The Waterloo and City Line is colloquially known as the Drain. The origins of this nickname seem to be uncertain. It may be due to the tunnels beneath the Thames continually leaking and resulting water needing to be pumped out, or perhaps because Passenger access to the platforms at Bank was by a lengthy sloping subway resembling a drain. Uniquely among London Underground's railway lines, virtually all infrastructure on the Waterloo and City Line is completely underground, including all track, both stations and the maintenance depot at Waterloo. The Victoria Line is also underground for the entire passenger route and all stations, but has a surface level open air depot for maintenance. There are no track connections with any other railway line. All equipment transfers to and from the line are accomplished from the shaft and road crane at the Waterloo Depot. So, I hope you've enjoyed our look at the two-part Waterloo and City Line podcast. For an incredibly small line of only two stations and such a small distance, that's got a lot of history. If you'd like to make contact with us or suggest any places you'd like us to feature in future podcasts, you can let me know through our website, www.londonvisited.co.uk or through our social media, it's that easy. Thanks for listening and really hope you enjoyed our podcast and we'll see you soon on the next one. Bye. Thanks for listening and please don't forget to subscribe to get more shows direct to your device. Also, why not visit our London Visited YouTube channel to get even more of London. Catch you soon on the next one.